Hey, how about we, we pray as we get into this really rich and, uh, and beautiful passage of Scripture? Lord Jesus, you teach in Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17, that blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus, you spoke these uh, words to your, uh, your, your disciples, your apostles, who did see and did hear. Uh, we can't see as they saw, but we can hear through their seeing. So please will you help us this morning to really stay alert, stay awake, uh, to hear uh, your word, to hear the spirit. Uh, and we pray that you would please, uh, yeah, in hearing well, helping us to see uh, just the glory uh, of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, who was in Mount Barker when the earthquake happened? Come on. What, what did it feel like? What, what was it like, seriously? I've, I've never been in one, so was it like, did the whole earth move under your... What's that song? Whole earth under, under your feet, whatever it was. Was it like that? Who, who sings that one? Come on. No idea, all right. I think it was talking about a, a bloke. But, uh, yeah, what was it like? Did, did it... And I guess more importantly, um, what thoughts... What feelings started running through your head? When we, get, when we experience uh, things like an earthquake, um, it raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? Uh, particularly around safety and security. How secure do you feel about your world at the moment, uh, your future? Many of us tomorrow morning are going to uh, rise with the sun to pause and to remember well those who are currently serving, who have served, those who have actually paid the ultimate sacrifice. Um, we pause to remember as well the reality that war and death and evil, they're actually part of the fabric that's sewn into this world that we're a part of. You can't escape it. I mean, you can stick your head in the ground, but you cannot escape it. It's there. Although created for the good and the glorious, every one of us is capable of unconscionable evil. Uh, surely what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment in Europe? Uh, we, we thought last century we'd had two world wars to end all wars. Never again. Surely we've learnt the lesson. What is it about human nature that see us on, sees us on that roundabout again? See, is there tangible security and hope to be found in a world with wars, virus, pandemics, mass flooding, bushfires, er even earthquakes in this little town called Mount Barker? Images of Ukrainians huddling in underground bunkers, gathering and huddling together in train stations, singing Christian hymns surrounded by rubble and ruin of war. It reminds us that because of Jesus, there is hope and there is security that even the worst suffering and the worst evil cannot extinguish for those who call themselves Christian. That brings us to Jesus' last and longest speech here in this leaflet. Really important that you pull this out. Yeah, follow along with me. Uh, there in Matthew 24, it's his last longest speech before he goes to his cross. He's, he's hours away, literally, from being arrested, from going to his cross. 
Uh, just, just, just to put us in the frame, it's the third day since Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. It was like a footy grand final parade. He was, you know, crowds, kids welcoming, throwing their clothes down. But that was, that was, eight, that was three days ago. Jesus' disciples, they've witnessed uh, the most hostile confrontation and conflict with Israel's religious leaders. All in their attempts to try to trap Jesus in his words. They've determined months earlier that they want to do away with him. They want him dead. They want him gone. And now after three days, Jesus is leaving Jerusalem, his city, God's city, leaving the temple. The temple of God. And chapter 23 ends with the second person of the Trinity weeping, weeping over Jerusalem. Who haven't just not received their Messiah, but not even recognised him. They want to kill him, just like they've done to all the prophets before him. And so Matthew 24, as we heard, it begins with Jesus' disciples trying to comfort Jesus in his distress. And this, this is deep distress. And they do what generations of Jews have done before him, that they point out the impressive metre and a half long stones and impressive buildings of the temple there in verse 1. Now, now why would they do that? Well, because in places like Psalm 48, verses 12 to 14, you read this. You know, walk around Jerusalem, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God and that he's guiding his people. Sort of like, and I say this in a secular way, okay, but sort of like how the White House in America is a symbol of security to many Americans. You know, as long as the White House is there, we're safe. You know, the president is in. You know, so it's sort of a bit like that, that the walls and the buildings of Jerusalem had become a sign of security and safety, that God was with his people. And did you, did you hear, did you really hear Jesus' shocking reply? And it is shocking, isn't it? Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now, what's Jesus saying? Well, look, if you're looking for security in these stones, if you're looking for security in comfort in human beings, in human leaders, in the hands that build things, impressive buildings like... You're looking in the wrong place, says Jesus. There is no lasting security here. And particularly, we shouldn't be deceived... That just because the temple is still standing, that the God of the temple is still with his people. How can you say that when Jerusalem, they've just rejected their Messiah? Anyway, so we're now back up uh, on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives actually uh, was where an olive grove was. It's, it's, it's where um, the Garden of Gethsemane is. It actually was higher than Jerusalem. It actually overlooked the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is back there with his, with his disciples. And in response to this shocking reply of Jesus, they ask three questions. Three questions there in verse 3. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus answers their questions using strange language and symbols, doesn't he? 
Uh, and whenever the Bible does this, it's called apocalyptic language. It's talking about big cosmic things, end of the world things. It's talking about God things. Like God is about to do something really big that is to be like one of those massive hinges in history. Like this is going to change the course of history sort of stuff. So Jesus, uh, I don't know, now again, who's, who's ever been in an art gallery? Come on, stick your hand up. Excellent, all right. Did you have like favourite paintings or rooms that you like going into? Like, you know, I, I love to sort of, you go in, yep, oh, landscapes, yep, I, I know where that is. And, oh, portraits, yep, yep, wow, that's, that, that's amazing. You know, like, or, you know, you can see who that is. And then suddenly, you find yourself standing in a room in front of a painting or paintings that has this name on it called abstract art. And you, you want to you sort of look like you belong, you know, I'm really appreciating this. Wow, how interesting. Oh, this is beautiful. What the heck is he, what does it mean? Like, I've got no idea. What's well, a sort of bit, I don't know about you, but that's a little bit like what apocalyptic literature is, like Matthew 24. Again, for the younger crowd, um, you know, graffiti, you know, um, go along and you done a bit of traveling like you guys and think wow this is amazing it's so big how, how, how do they how do they do it? it's it's amazing you sort of appreciate it you step back and think but what the heck does it mean like you've got no idea a lot of graffiti art it's a bit like abstract art so it brings us to a really important thing where uh, uh, you uh, imagine that you're there you're looking at this abstract picture the person who painted it comes up to you and says, oh, do you want me to tell you what that means? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's taking a heap of apocalyptic imagery and scripture from the Old Testament. He's repackaging it here in, in chapter 24. And he's explaining what these prophecies, these visions, this, what it all means. And what it means in light of his coming. Again, have you ever done one of those helicopter flights? Like we, we um, uh, I had the privilege of travelling with my dad Oh, six years ago up uh, Gibb River, like the bungles. Everyone done the bungles up there? I mean, you walk around them, it's like, whoa, it's like walking around the moon. Anyway, I took a light plane up and we, we and it's like, it was, it was like looking at a lunar land. It's just crazy. But I didn't realise how big it was. You sort of got this, you know, the big bungle here and then you, you sort of look into the distance and they just keep stretching into the distance as far as the eye can see and shadowy in the distance of these big bungle, bungle mountains. So, one of the things about apocalyptic literature, just like standing in front of abstract art, if we all stood in front of the abstract art picture, you'd get, you know, 120 different interpretations. It's a little bit like that when you come to these sorts of passages of scripture. Uh, and so, some want to suggest that, you know, uh, Jesus is, this is all about Jesus coming back again, his second coming. Uh, it's, it's all about... Um, Trials and tribulations, way, way off, like those shadowy mountains in, in, into the distance. Um, or it's, this is all about the destruction of the temple uh, in AD 70, which did happen. Or a combination of the two or whatever. But I want to suggest that the context of Matthew's gospel, just remember, like we're literally hours from Jesus' cross. He, he spent his whole three years teaching about the why he's come. And but also the actual text of scripture. That first and foremost, it's he's, he's urgent to teach them about what's about to go down. 
Uh, at the end of Luke, he says that all scripture, Psalms, prophets, law, is all about what? His suffering and death and resurrection. Uh, that this passage, like all the passages before it, is Jesus teaching about the mission and the meaning of his suffering and his death and resurrection, what it's meant to be, what, what it's going to mean for the end of the world, like for every human being in the world. That it's, the, the cross is, is the big hinge in history of humanity. There's going to be no other bigger hinge. The cross of Jesus, literally, it changes everything about the world and everything about being human in this world. So I want to suggest that Matthew 24 is Jesus focusing their attention on the detail of the mountain that is nearest to them. It's right there in front of the helicopter. And on the detail of the mountain that's nearest to them, rather than some distant shadowy mountains in the future. And the way he does it is a key Reformation principle of how we all can just simply read out the truth of Scripture for ourselves. Where we work hard to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so what Jesus does here, um, the first thing he does is he answers that first question that they asked. You know, when will these things be? When will it all go down, Jesus? If you have a look with me at verse 34 in your leaflets, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. That is, you guys, this is all going to go down in your lifetime, guys. Second, I don't know if you picked up, the English is a bit fuzzy here, but there's all sorts of command words or um, imperatives, exhortations. Did you pick them up? Stay awake. Be alert. Be ready. Commands to his disciples. Did you ever wonder why the three synoptics, when Jesus is in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, why he commands them to stay awake and yet they fall asleep three times? Did you ever wonder why that little detail is included? It's got to do with this passage right here. Stay awake, be alert and ready. For what is about to happen will test your, um, your newfound belief in me that I'm the Messiah. It's going to test it. It's going to sift you like, like nothing. So be alert, stay awake, be prepared. Because here's the promise, guys, not just for you, but for us here today. Here's the promise, verse 13, that the person who endures to the end will be saved. Endures in what? The person who endures believing that Jesus is the Messiah, they will be saved. As we unpack this chapter, um, we're going to chunk it under three headings. The first Easter uh, followers there, those first Easter followers, they're to watch out For three things, says Jesus. Watch out for signs that deceive. Second, watch out for the abomination of desolation sign. And third, watch out for the Son of Man coming sign. Signs that deceive, abomination of desolation sign, uh, the Son of Man coming sign. All right, so first up, verses 4 to 14, beware signs that deceive. The first thing that we heard Jesus say to these first Easter followers is two warnings, wasn't it? Sentence four. See that no one leads you away or astray. Sentence five. Beware false Christs. 
Jesus has already warned about Israel's current leaders and the yeast of their teaching, hasn't he? Repeatedly. Watch out for these false shepherds. These self-proclaimed shepherds of Israel who should have recognised and received me as their Messiah, but instead has set themselves up as de facto messiahs, as de facto Christ. Like they want to rule the roost. Watch out, says Jesus, when I'm crucified and dead. They will seem to have won the day. Don't be deceived. It's not what it seems. Don't be led astray from believing that I really am the Christ. The second warning, or watch out warning, is there in sentences 6 to 8. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. One of the things that apocalyptic language does, a bit like abstract art, it you know, will talk about you know, the future to talk about past things and past things to talk about. It will just be all over the shop. But just think with me. Since first humanity rejected God's word in Genesis 3, There's always been wars, famines, floods, pandemics. Don't be deceived. These things are not the sign of the end. Today, next year, there's always going to be wars, floods, pandemics, rumours of... Don't be deceived. These are not the sign of the end. The third thing to watch out for, says Jesus, and to be ready for is in verses 9 to 14. Those first Easter disciples are to be, they're about to have their own trials and tribulations beginning in a matter of hours as a result of their loyalty to Jesus. And it's why it's going to be it's recorded that when Jesus is arrested, they literally flee and run for their lives. Woo, they're out of there. Because scripture must be fulfilled. The sheep of the shepherd will be struck. The shepherd will go alone to his cross for the sheep. You've got Peter's three denials. Their belief in Jesus as the Messiah is severely tested. Again, verse 13, again, Jesus is clear. The overarching responsibility, the overarching uh, exhortation from Jesus, like why... Don't be led astray. Why don't get diverted? Why don't get deceived? Is because those who endure, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, I promise you, they will be saved. Then we come to that third question. Um, Jesus doesn't answer the questions in order. Sorry for those who like things nice and neat. Okay, Jesus doesn't always do that. The third question, when is this close of the age? Verse 14. What does verse 14 say? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see, only when the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed to all nations, the end can only come from that. Because since the beginning, since God plucked Abraham this idol-worshipping pagan and mysteriously bound himself and the whole future of humanity in this world 
to this guy called Abram and said, I'm going to bless you, make you into a great nation, and through your seed, your offspring, talking about Jesus, all the nations in the world will be blessed. And so the end, the close of the age, can't come until the gospel has gone out to all nations. Of course, the book of Acts records, doesn't it, um, that the ongoing uh, troubles and tribulations of those first disciples, I mean, yeah, they begin with Jesus' arrest and, and stuff, and, and then they just continue as they stand up and stand firm for Jesus and keep preaching about Jesus no matter what, because people need to hear. They need to hear. That's all that matters until Jesus comes back. People need to hear how else can they believe and be saved. Well, from watching out for signs that deceive, Jesus now answers the most important second question. Okay, he's been saving the, the big question, the really, this is the key to it all. What will be the sign of your coming, Jesus? And Jesus says to watch out for two signs, doesn't he? The first sign is the abomination that causes desolation sign. That's in verses 14 to 23. I'll just read out from verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. That's verse 21. And he's quoting from Daniel. He tells us he's quoting from Daniel, particularly Daniel chapter 12. Jesus is alluding to the, to the prophecies, the visions, so that God gave Daniel 600 years earlier. It's where um, a fair bit of this apocalyptic language comes from. In Daniel chapter 12, we're told that just before the day of resurrection, there would be a suffering and a, and a tribulation that would be so terrible, so great, that nothing in human history has ever or will ever be as great or terrible again. At this time, God promised that judgment day on the world would arrive. After this day of the worst ever suffering and tribulation, after this day... God's judgment would arrive on the world. And then the day of resurrection would happen. Then the gospel would go out and people would be delivered. Let me ask you a question. When in history does the Bible record an abomination that causes desolation of such great distress, unequaled from the beginning of humanity until the end of the world? When? Is this? Yes, the dismantling of the terrible would have been horrible for those there. And yes, the, the, the centurion who led that army is recorded as standing in the Holy of Holies. But the problem is that that's happened before. <laughs> it's not a unique, unrepeatable event. And you've only got to look at the pictures and hear the stories coming out of the Ukraine. Like, is that really? Is not the worst abomination in the history of humanity is when Jew and Gentile got together to crucify the second person of the Trinity? Isn't it Jesus' own people 
Just, just imagine. You know, imagine you go away for a holiday. Say to the kids, just look after things while we're gone. There's a pandemic. You get caught up overseas for a few years. <laughs> okay, Mike comes home. Hey, we're home. He says, who are you? Get lost. Get out of here. No, it, it, this is not yours. This is ours. Get lost. Like, imagine your own kids rejecting you, like not even receiving you. Like, but it's got to be the worst of the worst. Of course, in Matthew, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Do you ever wondered why those first Christians chose the cross as the sign, and not, not a you know a, a stone or something you know that covered the tomb or I don't know. The cross of Jesus is the most horrible thing, the most horrible suffering. It's the most horrible evil humanity will ever ever commit but the cross of Jesus is also the most wonderful never to be repeated day to happen isn't it but the cross of Jesus is the wisdom and the power and the love of God saving this rebel humanity that crucifies the second person of the trinity saves him from certain death judgment and hell to eternal life with God in heaven the slate wiped clean a full pardon Full forgiveness. The cross of Jesus was the darkest and most evil day for humanity. But God ordained this day to be the moment in human history when God defeated all the powers of darkness, all the darkness of sin and the power of evil. God did this by the singular suffering and sacrifice of his only begotten son. For your sin and mine and the sin of those disciples there. This moment of abominable suffering of Jesus, it guaranteed, it guaranteed that suffering in this world now has a use-by date. This seemingly hopeless moment in human history was the moment eternal resurrection hope was given for those who believe. It's for any human being of any nation anywhere and this brings us to the sign that's the key here. It's where it's the Son of Man coming sign. The Son of Man coming sign. And he's quoting Daniel 7 here. Let me just give you some background of what the part of the vision that God gives Daniel in chapter 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom such that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7 and 12, between those two ch chapters, there's a sequence of events, a chronology that, that sort of God gives about what to look out for when the Messiah comes. First, a day of great distress. Second, a darkened sun and moon. Third, the day of judgment arriving. Fourth, the day of resurrection and deliverance of God's people. And last, messengers sent out with the gospel to, to, to all the nations. So now just come back with him at Matthew chapter 24. We pick it up at verse 
29. See if you can hear this reference to Daniel 7. Immediately after the distress of those days, referring to this day of great tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. We've got first the day of great distress of Jesus' suffering, which I'm suggesting is his, his death, his cross. Second, we have a sign, a darkened sun and moon not giving light. Interestingly, how the three synoptics, Matthew included, records three hours when the sun was darkened and the moon did not give its light just before Jesus' death. Okay. Day of great tribulation, suffering, darkened sun and moon. Then Matthew records that Jesus died. We know, according to the sequence in, in Daniel, great distress, darkness, judgment day. Well, Jesus is dead. Judgment on all the world. And of course, here's the kicker, isn't it? Instead of that judgment day falling on all the world, falling on Israel and everyone who'd crucified Jesus... It actually fell on Jesus that day. Judgment of the world fell on Jesus, God's own son, that day. Instead of falling on you and me, it fell on God's own son. And then in the words of Matthew chapter 24, verse 28, we're told that Jesus is dead. Jews and Gentiles are gathered together with the vultures, looking upon the corpse of this Son of Man who's been pierced for our sins in our place. What comes next in Daniel 7 and 12 sequence? You've got a day of great distress, darkness, judgment day on Jesus, resurrection day. And of course, three days later, as we remembered and rehearsed last Sunday, many eyewitnesses testify to the empty tomb of Jesus. They see, hear, touch, eat with a bodily resurrected Jesus over 40 days, over 500 people. The resurrection day, it's begun for one man. Just like you go out looking for that first fruit, the first ripe orange, the first ripe bunch of grapes to see what the year's harvest is going to be like. Jesus is the first fruit, the first man to rise. Anyone who lives and dies believing in him will be raised to life just like Jesus, to enjoy life with him forever. Great distress, darkness, judgment day, resurrection day. Then according to Jesus, the coming of the Son of Man on clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days to receive all power and authority. Again, quoting Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Now, what I just want us to notice here, and this is why I really struggle to arrive at the conclusion that, that Jesus is teaching about his second coming. Do you notice the direction of travel in, in Daniel 7 and also here? Coming to the Ancient of Days, God, to receive all power and glory and authority. Which is why, again, 
several of the, the Gospels record Jesus sort of ascending on clouds to heaven, coming to the Ancient of Days. And having ascended to God's right hand, Jesus has received all power and authority over heaven and earth. He is now ruling over the cosmos with all power and authority. And how is he wielding his power and authority? Well, remember the sequence from Daniel. Great distress, darkness, judgment day, resurrection day, the coming of the Son of Man, all power and authority. Then the sending out of the angels to, the, to, to all the nations with, with the gospel. Um, a little quirky sort of linguistic thing, grammatical thing. The word for angel in the original language is the same word for messenger or sent one. And of course, why does Matthew end with Jesus commissioning those apostles, sending them out to all, make disciples of all nations? And surely I'm with you until the end of the age. And the end of the age can't come until the gospel goes out to all nations. So as we finish, how do we live securely, safely, with meaning and real hope? How, how do we find safe passage home to God, security, you know, at the end of the world? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. Based on what we've rehearsed last weekend and again looked at this morning, in whose hands is the future? In whose hand, who holds the future? Who is the future? The hands of the Son of God that were pierced for you and I. In whose hands then are the present, like today? Whatever anxieties you're feeling about today. Well, it's these same hands, the hands that hold the future. Your every tomorrow, whatever that brings. It's safe and secure with these hands. These pierced hands, they hold all the power and authority of the universe. And so, second takeaway here is let's not get deceived and distracted and carried away, you know, about signs and what may or may not be happening in the world. and Because the sign, the only sign that matters is Jesus' death on a cross for you. That is the sign. To say, I'm in control. I love you. God is for you. God is with you. That's it. That is the sign. No other sign. So let's not be deceived. Because those who endure to the end will be saved. But I think this chapter also helps us reevaluate and recalibrate and perhaps reorder who or what we may be clinging to for security and safety and meaning in, in our life at the moment. Over the, uh, the course of the four Bible and Bush nights that we ran, uh, we ran um, uh, end of last month, I had Glenn McDonald down. Glenn runs the, the ministry and the mission with his wife Beth and five kids up at Roxby Downs. And I 
Glenn shared about his testimony about how he was a young man, he just graduated, he thought, you know, life and happiness for him was all about, you know, great job, money, you know, uh, whatever you could get out of this world. And he goes out to a uh, one of those satellite dishes in, in, in New South Wales, you know, country New South Wales. He's out there, he's feeling suddenly pretty isolated and whatever, and one of his work colleagues there... Um, well, he's the only guy that he works with. There's others, but this guy befriends him, takes a bit of an interest in him. And so anyway, so look, turns out he's a Christian. He runs a local youth group, so he, he hooks along with him and whatever, just starts to listen in. And, you know, he thinks, oh, this, this Jesus guy, this is not what I thought. And anyway, so he start, reads the gospel himself. And after uh, a number of months, Glenn realises that he's, just, he's living for the wrong stuff. He, he's living an empty life, and he now understands why. Uh, his life felt, you know, it was just doing burnouts in a cul-de-sac. It was just, it was empty and it was going nowhere fast. He became a Christian. This changed his life. He went into, he went into ministry and, uh, and stuff. And anyway, so there he is in this, you know, largest sort of uh, regional town, running a church, going well. And anyway, the, the former national director of BCA... Uh, Mark Short gives him a call and says, hey, Glenn, now you used to do a bit of work in mines and stuff, mate. All oh, right, yeah. How would you feel about taking your wife and five kids to live in the middle of the desert at Roxby Downs? <laughs> he just he said, I laughed at him. I laughed at him. I said, you've got to be joking. Are you serious? No way. Roxby? What? I hung up on him. <laughs> and um, he rings back again, you know, a few months later. Oh, Glenn, just please will you consider... No. Roxby, no way. Roxby, no way. Anyway, pretty persevering. <clears throat> Mark Short rings him again, third time, and he said, "Look, please, can you just, could you just pray, pray about things, whatever, you know?" So, okay, I'll pray. They started praying and they prayed. They talked more, and he thought, "Okay, I better do a little bit of, a bit of research about Roxby, whatever, you know, four and a half thousand people, FIFO people flying in and out." Um, it just turns out, he goes, "Wow, like." They're just like me. They're just like I was as a young person when I went out to, to New South Wales. They, they, they've, they've gone there because you can make bucket loads of money quickly, thinking life's all about money and stuff, and there's so much fracture in the town and families falling apart, and, and they just don't know about Jesus. And so as they prayed, he got convicted. And so there he is, ringing back Mark Short. We'll go to Roxby. Because they don't know Jesus and they need to know about Jesus. Because how else can they believe? How else can they be saved unless they hear about Jesus? So look, a, friend, a, a person who is hearing and heeding the future reality of the kingdom of heaven, I'm not suggesting we all move to Roxby tomorrow, although you would be a great gift and blessing to the church here, let me say. <laughs> but I don't know where you're at in life, but Life's too short and death's too real to not, not have an adventure for Jesus. Think, let's go and have an adventure for Jesus. Because God's in control. He's got our future. And people need to hear about Jesus. Heard about some of the events, some of the activities going on in the church. It's great. Let me just remind us again, though. I was here for six months. That The heartbeat of a healthy church is not events. I know you know that. It's the unseen stuff, isn't it? It's the stuff we never hear about. That love stuff. The thoughtful phone call. Dropping in to see someone on the way home from church because they haven't been here for two weeks. 
dropping a meal around to that person or family because they're just doing it tough. Noticing that people seem a bit on the outer and so you, you invite them over for a meal. Pastor never needs to hear about that stuff and it's better if they don't anyway. Just, it's, that's the stuff of the cross, the stuff of love and service and going the extra mile for Jesus. And I know that there's lots of that going on in this church. Good stuff. Jesus says repeatedly, I'm coming. He has come. He's come on his cross for us, for humanity. And he is with us until the end of the age. But he also says, I'm coming back. And you better be ready. <laughs> you better be ready. Because I'm the guy you're going to be standing before when you die. Will you be ready for me, says Jesus? Will you be awake and ready for the most important date in your life and in death? Will you be ready to meet Jesus for the most important appointment you're ever going to have in your life and in death? Will you be ready? Let me pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, we just give thanks for this, um, well, this beautiful uh, piece of scripture that again takes us to something of the beauty and the wonder of your son, who he is in all his glory, but especially what he's done for us in all his love for you uh, and for this rebel humanity. Thank you that because of his pierced hands, we are forgiven. For all who turn and bend the knee and come to your son, they are assured that they are forever forgiven. That you are with them this day and every day until you come again or we die. Thank you. You are God for us and you are God with us. May this give us the security, the comfort. May it give us the courage to live each day full on for you, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of your church that you're building here, for the sake of your name. Amen.